Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The New Statesman. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs on the Black Isle in Scotland. I'm Emily Tamkin, Senior Editor, US, and I'm still in Washington, D.C. I'm Nita Vogt, Europe Correspondent in Helsinki. It's Thursday, the 6th of October. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, we're discussing what nuclear escalation from Russia might look like and how the wider world might respond. Vladimir Putin is becoming embarrassed and pushed into a corner. And I wonder, Mr. President, what you would say to him if he is considering using chemical or tactical nuclear weapons. Don't. Don't. We'll also discuss North Korea's missile launches. The ballistic missile firing by North Korea was an outrageous act that was absolutely impermissible. And we'll take a listener question on the Iran nuclear deal. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right. As you can hear, we're like Carmen Sandiego in this episode. Where in the world are my podcast co-hosts? No. Um, a couple of housekeeping notes before we begin. The first is that if you have not yet listened to Katie's excellent miniseries podcast on China under Xi, we strongly encourage you to do that. It is available in the feed where you found this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And then the second thing is that we have a very, very exciting development. Normally, at the end of this podcast, we ask you to email us your US Ask questions no longer. We are now going to just direct you to a website, newstatesman.com slash you ask us, one word. As always, you can tweet at us, but this way there's just a form. You go, you fill out your question. If you leave your name, we'll shout you out. Hopefully this will make it even easier for you to send us your questions and be a part of this podcast. But not this podcast, not this episode, because we are already going to just get into it. We got a lot to get through, all of it somewhat terrifying. On that cheery note, as we have discussed before, Russian President Vladimir Putin has threatened to use nuclear weapons in his war in Ukraine. Now, so far, those threats have happily been empty. And indeed, Russia is still apparently working out the exact boundaries of the Ukrainian territory it claims to have recently annexed. Still, the United States and its allies are preparing in case Russia does decide to change course. Katie, you wrote a piece on this this week, which we'll put in the show notes to this episode. So we'll start with you. What has unfolded since Russia reiterated this threat along with its referendums and its legitimate annexation? What has the past week looked like? And what are Ukraine and the U.S. and its allies thinking? 
Well, I think it's important to say maybe at the outset that Putin has been making these threats from the very beginning of this conflict. I think we all remember when he gathered his, his defense minister and the head of the general staff at the end of one of those very long tables and ordered them to put the nuclear forces on a special combat alert status, which was terrifying to hear, but had no practical effect. It did, however, achieve somewhat of what he clearly wanted then and lightly wants now, which was to make Ukraine's Western supporters think very long and hard about exactly how much and what type of support they were prepared to offer and how they could ensure that this conflict did not expand beyond Ukraine. You know, I I think that really factored into the discussion around Ukraine's repeated requests for a no-fly zone was the concern in Western capitals that then this would spiral into World War III. So making these kind of threats before has worked to an extent for Putin. The problem is that having now declared that these four further regions of Ukraine are now part of Russia, his bluff is already being called. So within hours of that very grand ceremony he held inside the St. George's Hall of the Kremlin and the very mediocre rock concert that was held on Red Square afterwards, Russian troops were already ceding more of that ground. Ukraine took back Liman, a strategic rail hub in Donetsk, and they are pushing further forward towards Russian positions in Luhansk. They're also making progress on the southern front towards Kherson, where Russian lines are also under serious pressure and seem to be seem to be crumbling in some places. So it is terrifying. It's intended to be terrifying. That's how nuclear blackmail works. But I think we should be careful not to buy into Putin's narrative. You know, we, we've seen this at very stage, various stages of the, of the war, this idea that, well, we should be careful now how far Putin is pushed into a corner, how far Ukraine advances. We should be careful not to humiliate Putin, not to let him feel like his back is against the wall. That is a wall of his own making, and he could take it down and step back over it at any time he chooses. So I think we should obviously take this very seriously. We should certainly think through and talk through the actions that can be taken to to try to dissuade this kind of move. But we should also see this for, for what it is, which is nuclear blackmail. It is Putin saying, if you don't allow me to bite off as much of Ukraine as I want, I will hold you all to ransom with my nuclear arsenal. And, and we should be clear that if that does work, if he finds that that ploy is successful, this will not be the last time that he or any other country uses this. What might, I mean, this is such a horrifying thing to even speculate, but some people have said maybe he would do something like strike Saparija, or maybe it would be a nuclear display like over the water, which would still be extremely dangerous. We shouldn't sort of downplay the very real threat of... Um, aspiring autocrats playing with nuclear weapons, but but that it would be something like that, just a sort of a, a flex of the muscle. What do you make of that theory, that, that if you were to use them, it would be something like that? I think the issue with what's being described as a demonstration shop, so a, a nuclear test or an explosion um, over an unpopulated area, maybe over the, the Black Sea, Lawrence Friedman ha- has written for, for the New Statesman on this, is that the problem is it would still be unclear what the message is from that. And he would have crossed the nuclear threshold. He would invite a lot of the most serious consequences without achieving any tangible gains. So it is certainly possible. I think before we would get to that, we are likely to perhaps see more 
signaling in, in terms of assets being moved around. You know, I, I think we would see that before we saw a, a nuclear detonation, but it seems likelier if he is considering it that he would also try to do something that gives him some sort of tactical advantage. And I think, you know, reasons for a degree of optimism, and it, you know, it, it's an absolutely terrifying subject, but that is that it is difficult to see how this would advance his position on the ground. The fighting is dispersed across a, a very wide area. He would be attacking land that he's just declared as part of the Russian Federation. And there would be a very serious risk of radioactive contamination blowing back into, into Russia itself, not to mention then all of all of the diplomatic and all of the economic sanctions that would follow. So there would be very serious consequences and it wouldn't necessarily give him very much, which is not to say it's impossible. I think we we certainly have have to reckon with the with the possibility here, but it would be a it would be a very poor move strategically, and it's difficult to see how this would end in anything other than you know a, a very devastating war, but ultimately Russia's defeat. The White House, uh, we know, has assembled a team of national security officials. They're known somewhat embarrassingly, as the Tiger team, according to reports. And basically, their job is to sort of game out possible scenarios and how the United States might, might respond. But I think it's important to stress that this isn't the United States versus Russia, and that everyone has said that this was something that the United States would respond to should it happen in concert with its partners and NATO allies. There are some who have, have messaged that this would mean the defeat of the Russian army. And I think we should just be really clear that that, that is not coming from the administration. It's not the consensus view in Washington, D.C. So, Emily, can I follow up on that to ask, you know, we've seen, for instance, retired General David Petraeus talk about what kind of a, a U.S. response we might see. What's your view on what is the likely response or, I guess, range of responses that the administration might consider? Yeah, I think, I mean, so this is the minority view that I was talking about. The idea that the U.S. would say, yes, we're definitely going to destroy the Russian army if they do a nuclear display. That, that's at least not the message that's coming from the administration right now. I do think, however, that the United States will be pulled into this war in a way that it does not want to be, should this happen, because a line will have been crossed. And it's not just that a line will have been crossed, but countries other than Ukraine will be, obviously, Ukraine will be at risk in a way that it wasn't before, even though it's been under siege for months now. But the rest of Europe will be too. And those are NATO allies. And so that necessarily brings the United States in, because now Article 5. I don't know. I think it would depend on what exactly happens. But I think that we should disabuse ourselves of the notion that it would necessarily be limited to an economic response, unfortunately, because then we're in even scarier territory than we've been in for the majority of 2022. But as much as that's up to the US and its NATO allies, it's also up to Putin to not do this illogical thing. However, one could say that of the war itself. So everybody working on this has been quite clear that the U.S. wouldn't be acting alone, that this is something that it would respond to with its allies and partners. Ido, what do you make of that coming, looking at it from the European view? From Europe, uh, like, it's pretty clear that if there was a use of nuclear weapons, demonstratively or otherwise, the main response would be led by the U.S. just because of the U.S.'s power relative to, to Europe, I don't think it would necessarily be done unilaterally, but like pretty clearly any sort of response on behalf of NATO would be led by 
by the US. But I, I do think that there was a lot of understandable sort of fear in, in Europe about this. At the same time, I think these nuclear threats and various other moves and, and events around Europe over the past few weeks have really kind of shown how unreliable and frankly scary Russia is. And I do think that one of the effects of that is going to be weakening the strain of thought in, in Europe that it's sort of been, oh, we need to find some sort of accommodation with with Russia. We need to settle because they've, they've just shown themselves to be so brutal and unreliable and, you know, with these annexations and these nuclear threats and the apparent uh, sabotaging of the Nord Stream pipelines, I mean, it's all kind of shown Russia to be, to, to be willing to burn every single one of the few bridges they had remaining. And that I think there's a really clear understanding across Europe, even from a lot of the people who might have been sympathetic to some sort of accommodation or reset that like Russia really is an immense threat to European security. I mean, there's no way to spin threatening nuclear wars as a sort of defensive act. And these the same with these annexations. So yeah, that's a great point. That escalate to de-escalate. It's questionable logic under the best of conditions, and I don't think that threatening a nuclear attack is the best of conditions. It's not sound as an argument in this case. Well, we will put the pieces mentioned in the show notes for this episode. And now we are going to move on to more terrifying news, but elsewhere in the world. North Korea has conducted six missile tests in two weeks. It also flew warplanes near its border with South Korea on Thursday, leading South Korea to respond by scrambling 30 military aircraft. Katie, what are they doing? Why are they doing this now to us? No, what's what's going on here? So I think there's always a tendency whenever North Korea launches a missile or conducts any any sort of weapons test to to ask sort of you know what is the message they're sending? Why are they doing it now? Is it time to an anniversary? Are they angry that Kamala Harris went to the demilitarized zone last week? I think the reality with North Korea is that they have specific objectives for their weapons program that they are trying to meet. So Kim Jong-un sees this as an existential issue for the survival of his regime is having both demonstrable nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them. So intercontinental ballistic missiles that could reach the mainland United States and also various types of types of missiles that could be used within the region. So that is his overarching aim. And he moves towards that with greater or lesser velocity, depending on the circumstances and his ability to do so. So I think this year, and particularly since the start of the war in Ukraine, we've seen him really push where where he can, notwithstanding the massive COVID outbreak that North Korea had earlier in the year, but really press ahead with his missile tests. And I think it is likely that the view from there would be that they can effectively do this right now with very few consequences. You know, the, the last time we saw weapons tests on this scale, on this frequency, was 2017. When we saw Donald Trump was in office there, that was the time of, you know, the threats of fire and fury, the very real concerns that this could be moving towards conflict once again on, on the Korean peninsula. And then this really united response, really un unprecedentedly in, in recent times with China and Russia backing, you know, voting in favor of very tough sanctions on North Korea at the UN Security Council. I think Kim's reading this time is likely to be that that is the one thing that is definitely not going to happen. He can count on the UN Security Council 
being disunited on China and Russia certainly not voting with the US now to impose tough sanctions. So I think if you're if you're the Kim regime and you're trying to move ahead with your weapons program, this is a, as good a time as any. He tends to work in these sort of cycles of provocation and as long as he pushes as far as he can go and as long as he can do that and judge it short of very serious consequences and certainly short of conflict, he has always found that then there's a phase of diplomacy and talks and he can he may well be interested in in entering into negotiations again, perhaps after Biden's first term and maybe hoping that someone like Trump or indeed Trump himself um, will be back post-2024 and arguing to get sanctions relief to have North Korea's nuclear status recognized, but now from this much stronger position with a much more advanced weapons arsenal. So this is part of the collateral damage that we're seeing from this conflict is that other powers are seeing that this is a time when there is disunity. And when, you know, in Kim Jong-un's case, where I think he is probably right to believe that he can do this with very little censure from the international community. This is not an original point. I'm actually stealing it from a conversation that we had with Ido, I think last week. But the fact that Russia is now able to threaten Ukraine, in part because one has nuclear weapons and the other doesn't, will likely inspire other countries in the world to want to have their own nuclear weapons as protection. So we had already seen that some in Japan, which was the only country that has been attacked by a nuclear weapon by the United States back in World War II, that actually Japan or some political segment of Japan wanted to borrow, I guess, a U.S. nuclear weapon because of, one assumes, because of North Korea. Do you think that we will see more such requests or or, or more sort of desire on the part of North Korea's neighbors to be protected in this way or to have this sense of protection? I think there's two elements to that. And one, you know, one thing I should have said was that the missile that was fired on Tuesday flew over Japan. There were emergency alerts and air raid sirens sounding in, in several prefectures of Japan on, on Tuesday morning as this missile flew, flew overhead. So the more provocative, the more aggressive North Korea's behavior becomes, the more those in the region will have to look to their own defenses and the more that will empower voices within Japan, who, for instance, do already (laughs) want to revise the constitution and and do want to think about, um, somewhat can't believe we're even talking about this, but about acquiring nuclear weapons. I think the other important element to this is that as long as they feel confident that the US nuclear umbrella is still intact, that the US security guarantees are there and are long-lasting, that has long been the argument against thereby needing to get get their own deterrence and making an already combustible situation much more dangerous and triggering an arms race in in an already highly contested region. So what has undermined that and what is empowering this this shift towards let's get our own nuclear deterrent is the idea that maybe the US is not reliable. The last time Trump was in office, he was he was talking very seriously about pulling US troops out of South Korea. He was questioning the value of alliances in these regions. So both strands are, are pushing in the same direction. And I think it's important for all of us and, and all um, political leaders who do not want to see a nuclear arms race to take serious steps right away to make clear that these these alliances are important to make sure that domestic audiences understand and, and 
US voters, for instance, understand the value of these these alliances um, and that they're not seen as something that can be just promised away or, or threatened on the campaign trail, because that, that will have very dangerous real world effects. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including... The historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Speaking of nuclear proliferation, it is now time to move to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Perfect. Really, really nice work, both of you. So our question this week is basically a listener wanted to know what this all means for the Iran nuclear deal. For those of us who want 
to see more non-proliferation, that is less proliferation. I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is, and Katie Anito, you're welcome to disagree with me on this. The good news is I don't think that this will necessarily itself have direct bearing on nuclear talks between the US, Europe, Russia, Iran. The bad news is there's another development that will, which is, so basically if you've, just to recap, the Iran nuclear deal was Obama's, one of Obama's crowning foreign policy achievements. It was basically meant to slow the process by which Iran would get to a nuclear weapon. The thinking being Iran is about to be able to develop this technology. This will slow them. Trump pulled out of this deal. The Biden administration, since coming into office, has slowly been inching toward rejoining the deal. Although the deal is broadly popular in the United States, there is tremendous political, there, there is nevertheless political pressure against it. Republicans and some Democrats are, are staunchly opposed to this deal because they say that it will be bad for Israel because how could you support the Iranian regime? Proponents of the deal would say this is not meant to say that the Iranian regime is good. It's not meant to say that we like everything that Iran does. It is meant to resolve this one issue, which is we don't want Iran to be to have a nuclear weapon so that we can work on all of these other issues. Unfortunately for the deal, I think that the protests in Iran following the death of Masa Amini, and I'm so sorry if I if I mispronounced that name, but basically uh, morality police detained her for not properly covering her hair. Uh, and she collapsed at the police station. She died. There have been protests since. This makes it very difficult politically, I think on either side. I think it, it makes it, it makes it difficult for Iran, which has its own domestic political issues. And for the United States, you know, part of what would be involved here is sanctions relief. And it becomes more difficult for the Biden, for the Biden administration to do that when critics could say, well, look, you're giving relief to this brutal regime that saw a woman die for having hair exposed. So I think that that bodes ill for the Iran nuclear deal for, for reasons that are not North Korea and are not Russia's war in Ukraine. Well, we on this podcast love uh, love to be wrong. So if by the end of the year there's no Iran nuclear deal, um, or there is an Iran nuclear deal rather, and it's, it's been, you know, the U.S. has signed back on, um, I will come back and <laughs> admit that I got this horribly wrong. For now, we're going to thank all of you who sent in your questions. And listeners, you can send yours in at newstatesman.com slash youaskus. That's right. The new website, newstatesman.com slash youaskus, or by tweeting us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with Jeremy Wallace on information and ideology in China. If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Please also leave us a, a nice review. It really does help. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Yeah. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.